In the year 1896 of the Common Era, in the city of Thebes in Egypt, a British archaeologist named Flinders Petrie and his team were digging around when, suddenly, they discovered something extraordinary. Thebes had been the capital city at a time when Egypt was the dominant power in the Near East, and there was much to find buried in the sands of time along the Nile River. Flinders Petrie's workers had chanced upon a ten-foot-high slab of black granite called a steely. So here's your very first fun fact for Season 5 here at Jew Wanna Know. A steely is a chunk of stone, oftentimes broken, with ancient writing or inscriptions on it, and usually created as some kind of monument or significant marker. And this black granite steely from the city of Thebes was indeed just such a monument. It described the exploits of the pharaoh Merneptah in the year 1208 BCE, before the Common Era, and in particular a series of military campaigns he had won that year. For 25 lines etched into stone, Merneptah bragged about his successful campaign against invaders from Libya, but it's an additional three lines that generated the most interest. Those three lines describe a separate military adventure in the land next door to Egypt, which was called Canaan. And there, on line 27, from the year 1208, was a word appearing for the very first time in the historical record as we have it today, a word which would resonate down through the centuries to our very own time. The word was Israel. The Pharaoh Merneptah recorded a very simple, yet very cryptic phrase, Israel is laid waste and his seed is no more. Oh, the irony. The very earliest reference that we have to Israel claims to have destroyed it. Yet actually, that was just the very beginning of a people that long, long outlasted the pharaohs of Egypt. So this is that story. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome everyone to the kickoff episode of Season 5 of Jew Wanna Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Okay, so here we are, season five of Jew Ought to Know. We are talking about the first thousand years or so of Jewish history. I knew when I began this podcast several years ago that I'd have to start from the beginning at some point, and here we are. Now don't worry, I know I left you hanging at the end of season four with Israeli history. I will be picking that story back up in due time. But meanwhile, I like to jump around topics, keep things interesting. So this season, we're leaving modern history behind for the first thousand years or so of Jewish history. We'll be diving into the ancient history of Israel in the pursuit of a single question. How did the Jews become Jews? That's it. That's the whole point of this season. From where and when and why and how do the people who are today Jewish come to be Jews in the first place? And that's going to lead us to attempt to answer other questions, like... How did the God of Israel become, like, the God? Why is Jerusalem so important? What were the temples we hear about, the first and then the second temples? What was the Babylonian exile? Who really was King David? And how was the Hebrew Bible written? Who wrote these stories? Why and when? Now, in this whole story spanning a thousand years or so, we're going to have to reckon with a couple different but related tensions. The first tension is that when it comes to ancient history, here's the thing, it was a really long time ago. It's hard to be sure what exactly happened so far back in time. 
Some things are well-documented, others are not. We have to operate on theory, or go with our best guess, or fill in the gaps with some assumptions and imagination. On some things, we just have to be okay with ultimately not having a definitive answer. And that brings me to the second tension, the Hebrew Bible itself. It is chock full of history for this era, but it's hard to discern actual fact from narrative. And in some cases, the story is quite contradicted by actual archaeological evidence. Us Jewish educators often say that the Hebrew Bible is true, just not literally so. The writers were concerned with higher truth, not literal facts. The stories were written for a purpose, and reflect the perspectives of various times, various authors, and various goals. So it can be tempting to dismiss the work entirely as just myths and legends. Yet it would be a mistake to adopt either extreme of the spectrum, to dismiss the Hebrew Bible as fantasy, or to accept it as historical fact. Although much of the biblical account cannot be proven, the Hebrew Bible does reveal all kinds of knowledge of the ancient world, and in some cases those stories are backed up by the historical evidence. All of this is to say, this is a tricky story to tell. We're going to have to weave between what we know, what we think we know, what we know we don't know, and what we know is demonstrably false. My big challenge? Trying to keep us all straight. I'll try to be on the spot about telling you what is coming from the historical record, what is coming from the Bible, and what is being synthesized between the two. So those are my disclaimers. If you're a veteran listener, super great to be talking with you again. I know it's been a while. And if you're new here, welcome aboard. For here we go. Way, way back in time, when the Earth was alive with movement. Sometime around 15 million years ago, give or take a few million, a great scar tore through the part of the world we today call the Near East. There meets two of the huge tectonic plates that map the geography of our planet, the African and Arabian plates. Shoved up against each other, they're both moving in the same direction, but the Arabian plate was moving just slightly faster past the African. And so from what is today southern Turkey, down through Lebanon and Israel and Jordan and out into the Red Sea between Saudi Arabia and Egypt, the earth began to pull apart. Earthquakes dropped the land where the plates diverged as first hills and then mountains piled up on either side of the valley. Around three and a half million years ago, the Mediterranean Sea, which is not too far away, splashed into this long rift valley, creating a massive lagoon more than 150 miles long from the north to the south. For another million years of tectonic activity, the earth continued shaking, the mountains continued rising, and the floodwaters of the sea replenished the lagoon, year in and year out. It was a wet, lush, and green environment. But then, about two million years ago, the land rose just high enough that the Mediterranean Sea could no longer reach the inland lagoon, so the lagoon sat trapped. Officially, it was now a lake, or a sea. The water loss meant that the region became much drier, and so over hundreds of thousands of years, the sea slowly evaporated, exposing the long valleys that had been created by the tectonic plates millions of years earlier. Ice ages came and went, the level of this great sea sometimes rising, sometimes falling. As the valley beneath it continued to deepen, salt piled up from evaporation in what was now becoming a hotter climate. 
By around 10,000 to 15,000 years ago, the sea shrank into roughly its present form today. A 50-mile-long lake, 1,400 feet below sea level, the lowest place on planet Earth, and which is today so salty that nothing can live there. And thus from time immemorial, humanity has named it the Dead Sea. Now this Dead Sea is fed by a trickle of fresh water from a river we call the Jordan. And the Jordan itself comes from another, smaller remnant of that ancient lagoon, a lake in what is today northern Israel that we call the Sea of Galilee, or in Hebrew, the Kinneret. And so, for the last thousands of years, this system has pretty much described the geography of this portion of the Near East. The Sea of Galilee in the mountainous north dumps water into the Jordan River, which winds its way downhill through a long valley before flowing into the Dead Sea. To the west rise the highlands, the mountainous terrain that makes up Israel's interior, much of which we today call the West Bank. These mountains, formed by the tectonic movement of the Arabian and African plates, then slope downwards to a flat and narrow coastal plain that then, within a few miles, runs into the Mediterranean Sea along the beautiful beaches of the Israeli coast. As we'll come to see, the Jewish people will be formed in this geological fabric, their ideas and history and cultures and books and God all woven into the mountainous folds and the plateau deserts and the marshy swamps and the coastal plain. Even when they later disperse to other parts of the globe, their Jewish identity, peoplehood, and religion will forever be tied to the constraints and opportunities imposed by this geography. The Jewish people's ties to this land, then, is primordial, instinctive, a connection that would later find expression in the mythic stories of the Hebrew Bible. Since ancestral times, what we today call Israel has been amongst the first way stations on humanity's journey out of Africa. That narrow coastal plain, where the modern cities of Ashkelon and Tel Aviv and Haifa are today, it's a great little superhighway to other parts of the world, especially the fertile valleys in Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, and farther afield. For hundreds of thousands of years, humans, and their genetic variations, have been making their way across, around, and through this little corner of the planet. In the 1920s and 30s, a series of caves were discovered and excavated just south of Haifa, in a place called Nahal Me'arot. The Carmel Caves, as they're known, contain prehistoric tools, skeletons, and other signs of human habitation going back to up to half a million years ago. 500,000 years ago. The caves were occupied on and off until about 10,000 years ago, which makes them one of the longest sites of human habitation in the Near East. In one of the caves, the skeletons were found buried in a way that some scholars have attributed to ritual practices. The fact that they were buried at all hundreds of thousands of years ago says something. For burial is probably the earliest form of what we today call religious practice. And that's because it demonstrates that those who did the burying had the idea of a soul, a higher level of existence that transcends and outlasts the body itself. After all, if you didn't have that idea, you would think nothing of simply allowing a dead body to rot where it lay. So intentional burial, especially when it's accompanied by small tools or other personal items, as the skeletons were in the Carmel Caves, well, that indicates respect for the dead, 
and an awareness of our human selves that goes beyond the basic concerns of day-to-day survival. And keep in mind that we're not just talking about us homo sapiens. Not too far from the Carmel Caves, this time near the modern city of Zichron Yaakov, another cave called Kebara was discovered. In 1983 was found in there the most complete Neanderthal skeleton so far ever discovered anywhere in the world. This dude lived around 60,000 years ago, and he too seems to have been intentionally buried, but there's a lot of debate about that. In any case, he currently lives at Tel Aviv University, and his name is Moses. True story. So both Neanderthals and modern humans were running around Israel together, which is not unlike one of my birthright Israel trips. My millennials often leave vast quantities of luggage in their hotel lobbies, but these early humans left just enough traces of flint tools, small axes, animal bones, and other trinkets. Archaeologists and anthropologists were able to piece together the pattern of human life around this region tens of thousands of years ago. For most of that time, these early humans were the proverbial hunter-gatherers, nomads who roamed in small groups and often lived in caves like the one near Haifa along the coast. But starting around the same time that the Dead Sea settled roughly into its present form, we start to see the emergence of what we today we recognize as the earliest beginnings of what was to become ancient Israel. Around 10,000 BCE, there was a group of hunter-gatherers who liked to occasionally camp around a spring near the Dead Sea. But then they did something new. They stayed. Up to then, climate change had only allowed them to camp for brief periods of time. They left behind a few flints and other objects, so we know they were there intermittently. But as the climate stabilized and the geography settled, this group set up a permanent settlement. Today, we call this place Jericho. Located in the West Bank in between the Dead Sea and Jerusalem, it is one of the oldest continually inhabited cities on Earth. These hunter-gatherers at Jericho were just a bit ahead of the curve. They built society before it was cool. Pretty soon, humans everywhere were caught up in one of the great eras of history, the Neolithic Revolution, which is the fancy term for the invention of agriculture. Like Adam and Eve coming into great knowledge in the Garden of Eden, the Adams and Eves of the Neolithic Revolution went from gathering plants and hunting animals to growing plants and domesticating animals, which must have been harder than it seems. I've been trying to do both things unsuccessfully with house cats and an outdoor garden. In any case, this led to a massive leap forward in human potential and capability, and in particular to two major changes. Humans began using metal, and they started settling in one place. By about 9,400 BCE, the people at Jericho had built a settlement with 70 small, circular-shaped homes about the size of your standard master bedroom. This was more than 8,000 years before the Israelites were even on the scene. The great eternal cities like Athens and Rome and Jerusalem weren't even a flicker of the imagination. There wasn't even yet pottery. But there in Jericho, these people dwelled for generation after generation, partaking in the great agricultural revolution that slowly built complex societies, defined social orders, and spawned especially writing, which started about 5,000 years ago. Small towns arose, then cities, and then the great civilizations of the ancient Near East. 
A thousand years after the first permanent settlement in Jericho, the people there built something that, as far as we know, was the first of its kind. They put up a wall around their little city. Out of solid rock, the people of Jericho built a wall six feet thick and twelve feet tall, and topped it off with a tower that stood twenty-eight feet, a skyscraper. Probably it was used to protect the settlement from flooding, but a wall that size was probably also used for defense. And the tower itself may have had a ritual or ceremonial purpose. Either way, Jericho's wall would certainly classify, back then, as a great wonder of the human world. As for how they built it, along with an equally impressive ditch that ran alongside, the answer is sheer brute force. There were no fancy tools, not even the wheel. Indeed, this little settlement of Jericho must have had, back in around 8000 BCE, the kind of social order and division of labor that would be recognizable to us today, and which represented a huge advancement of the agricultural revolution. The wall would have been known throughout the region, and probably attracted new settlers. In exchange for settling down to do the hard work of agricultural labor, they got to enjoy the physical and perhaps even spiritual protection that Jericho's wall and the tower offered. No doubt such a wall would have entered the local consciousness as a thing to behold, like how we look at, say, the pyramids of Egypt. For thousands of years, as the fortunes of Jericho rose and fell, as the population expanded and contracted, as the city was abandoned and then rebuilt again, its walls continued to inspire fascination. By the time the Israelites entered history, and later wrote down their account of having conquered this land, the book of Joshua recorded in great detail the powerful walls of Jericho and how they fell before the Israelite God. Jericho is not the only super ancient city whose deep remains can still be seen today. There were plenty others that enjoyed a history before the Israelites, going back thousands of years. Indeed, what we today call Israel was a well-trafficked region for much of human history. This land was no stranger to the human beings who brought their families, skills, technologies, and ideas to this area. From new tools to new gods, this part of the world cradled human development for millennia. One people after another after another, most of their names long, long lost to us. So what is the point of these vignettes about the Dead Sea and early humans and Jericho? There is a history to the land of Israel that predates the Jews by hundreds of thousands of years, and it's still there, in Israel, to be seen even today. And by the time we get into the first moments of what will become Jewish history, it had already been deeply defined by the geographic and human evolutionary history of this region, as much as everything else that will come later, the wars and conquests and gods and temples. By the time the pharaoh Merneptah wrote of his conquests in the year 1208 BCE, this area of the world was teeming with people in competition and cooperation. It had already seen the rise and fall of empires. Great civilizations were making their mark. Gods roamed from one side of the Near East to the other. Far from stamping out this small group of people called Israel, Pharaoh Merneptah was instead recording the earliest flickering of their existence. From amidst the cacophony of the ancient empires, this mysterious group arose in the highlands of the land of Canaan, not too far from the ancient walls of Jericho. For the next couple episodes, we'll talk about this world into which the Israelites were born, which will give us some idea of who they were and how they got started. 
As always, you can access the whole Jew Wanna Know world at jewwantanow.com. Don't forget to sign up for my mailing list. And my email is podcast at gmail.com. Great to have you here for season five, the first thousand years or so. Talk to you next time. Lehitraut. See you later.